0: Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Grant McCarran, and we're here at the first episode of the Food and Drink Business Podcast. And today, I'm joined by the host of the podcast, and that's Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business. How are you doing, Kim? I'm very well. How are you going, Grant? Thanks very much, Kim. I'm also doing fine. And uh, also joining us today on the podcast, we've got Lindy Hewson, the publisher of Food and Drink Business. Lindy, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well. Thanks, Grant. I'm excited to be here.
0: Excellent. And the fourth person on the show today, we're joined by Tom Yule. He's the uh, Senior Industry Analyst at IBIS World. Tom, how's it going in your world?
2: Ah, oh, fantastic! Thanks, Grant, and uh, thanks for having me.
0: Now, the uh, as we noted, the purpose of uh, this show is this first episode is to introduce you to the podcast and uh, give you a bit of a history very short history on uh, what's been happening to date, and of course, the top 100, which is one of the uh, flagship products from Food and Drink Business. So to start with the overview and give us that background, Lindy, would you be able to uh, provide us that information?
1: I'd be delighted. Now, Food and Drink Business uh, has been in my portfolio for quite a while, and um, it has a very proud heritage grant. It is 45 years old this year as part of the Yaffa Media Stable, uh, one time it was called Food Manufacturing News. That's sort of a couple of, maybe a couple of decades back. And at that time we really had a stronger focus on manufacturing. And now while we still focus on manufacturing today, we needed our masthead uh, to convey our focus on b- business to business, uh, to, to convey really how we do deliver hard news, copy, and insights on the whole food and beverage industry. And so we changed the name. um, And that is what we have today, which is Food and Drink Business, very well known and leading industry title. We cover the, we give in depth editorial on every aspect of food and beverage production. So how we get from paddock to plate and the the business behind doing that. Uh, We highlight trends, innovation, and all the important input pillars like ingredients, product development, processing, and of course, my pet topic packaging. Um, So with the change of name, um, we also gathered a a good following of industry executives, decision makers, change drivers, opinion leaders, rising stars, everything in between. And one of the products that we produce every year and one we're most proud of is our flagship product, the top 100 Australian food and beverage companies report. And um, this is published in print and it's available on our website. And it is by far and away the most downloaded and clicked on asset on our website. We're very proud of the report. And what's really elevated this report year on year is our partnership with Ibisworld. Ibisworld provides the top-notch data, and we get strong industry support for it from um, and our regular company partners, including our returning sponsor, Foodback. Uh, they're an automation and line integration specialist, and um, they really give us Excellent support on the project. Now, at this time of year, we're in the lead up to compiling the 2020 report. And that means that editor Kim Berry and also Tom Yule, the senior industry analyst from IBIS World, are very busy. And I'm going to hand over to Kim because she's going to start the conversation all about um, what the top 100 is going to comprise Yes, the lovely thing about the
3: top 100 for 2020 is it's just been such a quiet year. Oh, just happened. <laughs> you know, everyone's sleepy town. Hasn't <laughs> it, Tom? You haven't, there's been nothing happening. No, Scratching nothing big, around in no, the dirt looking for something no, to report no, on. No
2: worldwide pandemic, nothing major. It's been uh, <laughs> nice, nice and relaxed, hasn't
3: it? Oh, exactly. Hey, Tom, tell just for everyone listening, can you just sort of fill in a bit about what you do and, and what your job entails?
2: So, I'm a senior industry analyst at Ibisworld, so I guess in my role, uh, what I do is just sort of look at, uh, mainly in, in line with what my firm does as well, is we look at really macroeconomic trends, so high-level stuff. Uh, so, our main product is industry reports, but as a part of that, we also have uh, company research on the top 2,000 largest companies in Australia. Uh, a lot of them, obviously, in the food and beverage scene, and so we use this data uh, in our lovely collaboration with yourselves uh, to put together the top 100 uh, food and beverage company list every year. I'm not sure how long exactly it's been going now, but it's been a fair few years, um, I imagine.
1: We've been at least a decade. Mm.
2: Yeah, at least a decade. So, um, yeah, it's been great to, again, uh, we'll be putting together this list in 2020. So I guess but my, my job uh, specifically is looking uh, I guess at the food sector from, I think, Lindy, you put it nicely, paddock to plate. So uh, I look at agriculture, uh, manufacturing, Wholesale and right through the retail, and also uh, food services sector—you know, re- restaurants, cafes, bars, uh, hotels—to a lesser extent. But, um, tourism is also a bit part of my portfolio of, of uh, industries I look at. So, uh, it's a nice partnership, and you know, it's it's a point of interest for me. So, this is a it's a pleasure to come on this podcast today and just uh, have a chinwag about what's been going on. I
3: know, I know, right? It's um, look, I think you know, it's the it's it's the thing that puts the kick in my step is is just how dynamic the industry is and the the depth and breadth of it is um, always changing and always, um, you know, just always incredibly interesting. Uh, With that, why don't we step straight into who made up the top 10 last year. I think one of the interesting things about that top 10 is it really did cover off on the breadth of um, most of the key markets. So, there were dairy companies, meat companies, beverages, alcohol, um, as well as then, you know, sort of consumer and grocery goods. Uh, There was a bit of a focus. There was a couple of dairy companies in there. Uh, You know, Fonterra took out number one spot, which was interesting because it had actually had its biggest loss and it's I think its first loss in seven, its 17-year history. What's happening in that sort of dairy space? What have you been seeing?
2: Oh, geez, a lot of things. So I guess it's a miss to not talk about um, what's happened due to the COVID pandemic. Um, like the agricultural sector does, I guess if you look at Frontera's inputs, does operate a little bit separately from the virus in the sense that you know farms can keep operating, and there's a, probably more pertinent things like such as rainfall, or, you know, um, like, you know how many cattle, uh, so for example, the milk producers has, and then obviously then you're looking at milk supply. So uh, the conditions have varied between New Zealand and Australia. Uh, in Australia, milk production, uh, you know, felt fell quite sharply in 2018-19 and is likely to remain low uh, in the 2019-20 financial year. So that's provided a a few challenges in regard to milk supply. And obviously, you look for someone like Fonterra that does a mountain of uh, milk powder exports in particular to China. But overall, this year, it's perhaps been better than expected for Fonterra. Uh, Milk powder exports, which were tipped to be pretty constrained in regard to the demand for China. So if you're looking at it at March, for example, we thought international trade was going to be really severely constrained, which is all obviously damaging to uh, milk powder exporters. But things haven't been too bad, and overall exports to China, demand from China, particularly for staple grocery goods, has been really solid uh, and trended back upward every month since February, as China's done, I guess, what you might call a relatively good job of keeping the virus contained domestically. So, the consumer demand in China uh, for milk products and those staple dairy products has been rising, and that's going to benefit companies like Frontera and another top 10 uh, I guess and Saputo.
3: Yeah, well, Saputo sort of came rocketing up the list last year um, with the highest level rec- revenue growth at uh, 220.8%, uh, but yes. largely due to the, the $1 billion takeover of Murray and Warnble cheese. Um, so, it'll be interesting. They jumped 25 places from 34 to number nine. Uh, I'm not quite sure their year will be quite as dramatic this year, but we've seen it as well with other companies that are, uh, particularly other sort of milk product or even infant formula companies on the list, like uh, like A2 Milk. Uh, they jumped from 31 to 26 in 2019. And, uh, you know, they've I think their performance this year seems to be incredible incredibly solid and while there was so many of them reported that initial dip at the beginning of the year when COVID-19 really rocked China that um, those markets have sort of regained ground since then. And obviously, the other the other company in the top 10 that has a component of their business in dairy is Lion. And this year, last year in, the, in our list, we were talking about how they were looking to offload their dairy and drinks business to the China menu dairy company. And this year, we'll be reporting that that collapsed. Um, so, Again, some interesting things happening in that space that could really maybe play a role in, you know, shifting around some of those companies that are in that top 10.
2: Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, Saputo and Lion actually conducted a little bit of business. I think as their cheese, the specialty cheese business went from, uh, Lion to Saputo, um, in sort of late 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, I guess we've seen Saputo's results come in and there's been some pretty solid growth, uh, in revenue terms, uh, for the 2019-20 financial year to back up that really solid, obviously, well, not really solid, remarkable, uh, 2018-19 result uh, that they posted after taking over the, um, uh, the Murray Goulburn Cooperative. So there's been, there is a lot of, uh, I guess, like to your point, Tim, a bit of movement going around in that space, and sort of what Lyons doing in that uh, in regard to their dairy. I guess their dairy branches has, has been very interesting to see.
3: Yeah. And I think um one of the things that has obviously been discussed since that the China Menu Dairy acquisition fell over is that of course this now opens up opportunities for other companies to be looking to either you know either take acquire some some parts of that dairy and drinks business if not all of it. Um I know that like that there was there's been industry sort of talk that that Bega, which was 25 on our 2019 list, and Norco, that was 36, have both sort of been, um, you know, sort of bandied around as possible contenders in terms of taking on parts of that business. But moving on, what about the um, – there's two uh, – Alcohol company well there's three alcohol companies in that top ten, Lion and Carlton and United Breweries, and also Treasury Wines. but maybe we 'll look at the brewers first. I mean <laughs> Carlton and United had an interesting year because it it jumped in two thousand and nineteen from fourteen to eight because of a restructure by its then owner anheuser Bush InBev. Um, but then this year it's had its, the sale has gone through with Asahi Beverages acquiring the company. But just talk in, in a more general term about that sector because Lions had an interesting year as well um, in terms of cyber attacks and COVID and, and, and various other things um, like the sale not going through of, of drinks and dairy. So, talk to us a bit about what you guys are seeing in that brewing sort of brewer sort of space?
2: Oh, there's a yeah, there's a lot of things going on. Um, I think you touched on the top. That one of the best things about the food and beverage sector and, and or looking at it and researching it is how fast moving it all is. Um, obviously, COVID is going to be the headline story uh, for this year. Uh, you, you've been, you're going to see a massive divergence in demand trends. Obviously, with pubs shutting down, uh, sales to food services is, are essentially going to plummet. Like for states like Victoria, it's going to stop to zero uh, for several several months. So, but on the, on the other hand, uh, you have an increase in retail sales. So, liquor sales month on month uh, at a national level increased by forty percent, or peaked. At, I think it was even above forty percent at the peak of COVID, because obviously you can't go to bars. People decide to start drinking at home. Uh, so that. I guess it depends on the, the company's exposure. In terms of Lion and, and um, Carlton United, they're both, they're about equal. Uh, overall, we expect the effect of COVID to be negative, uh, as in the you know, there will be a downward pressure on revenue. However, there will be a bit of a saving grace in terms of retail sales going up, but you still got. Um, you know the really prevalent long-term trends of decreasing per capita alcohol yeah. consumption, but uh, that, that also being offset with increasing, I guess, per unit expenditure as people look to purchase more premium alcohols, and that's obviously prevalent in the beer space as well as many consumers move from you know your traditional you know your BBS and TUIs to your, to your more craft beer setup.
0: Uh, I just have a quick question on the COVID impact. You, you mentioned the the massive increase in home sales of alcohol, and I, I think we can all attest to um, supporting that or uh, contributing. <laughs> to it, um, but Mike, Mike, have you been able to identify um, how much of an impact there's been on the wholesale market of the, the large volumes that are sold from a brewer to the uh, various pubs and, and such that are all closed? So, while we have increased our consumption on a retail at home… Um, we're not buying as much. Hang out with friends at the pub. Are, are you able to identify whether that increase in retail has balanced it out or not?
2: Uh, so we think it's going to be a net negative just by uh, just looking at companies' exposures and I guess where their where their supply goes. There are some you know supply contracts which you can look at, but I think independent uh, liquor wholesalers. Uh, so their suppliers aren't. There are there I guess a two. I guess they're sort of two independent, or but semi-independent, sort of connected. They sh- they share a name. Are uh, their liquor wholesalers? Uh, so their supplies on their grocery arm, revenue increased last financial year by or nearly forty percent. So that just sort of underlines that retail growth. Uh, there hasn't been a great deal of reporting yet um, from you know, the liquor arms. It's Primarily service, I guess the food services market or the beverage services market would probably be a better term in this case. Uh, so, as been, they will be coming out, I guess the 2019-20 results within the coming months. So, I think that'll be something to keep an eye out for in the 2019-20 top 100 list is you know exactly what percentage are we looking at, and uh, you know we're certainly estimating the the overall effect to be negative uh, on the on the uh, on the industry. Uh, But, you know, this is in the order of a couple of percent decline when you're seeing, you know, something like the airlines industry decline by 40% a year. So, um, although not great news, um, it it is all relative. So, um, you know, depending on the company, um, perhaps some good news results. And so, of course, some bad news results to come out of uh, the 2019-20 year.
3: Uh, You talked, you just mentioned briefly in there the premiumization happening in the space. So, drinking less, but sort of spending more because you're buying a better quality product. Uh, Treasury Wine Estates is in that top 10. It came in at number five in that point in time recording its second uh, second year uh, revenue growth. At last year, its revenue growth was about 17, 17%. It's had a tough year. In uh, <laughs> that 17% growth, it saw that year, it saw a 17% drop in its American business um, that right at the beginning of this year due to oversupply and staffing problems. Um, it's reported this year a 25% drop profit drop. It's talking about demerging Penfolds from Treasury Wine Estates. But I know that in the investor briefing, the CEO was talking extensively about the focus on premiumisation for the company and the wines that it produces. Uh, Is that something you're seeing when when we're looking in that space as well? Is that something you're seeing happen a lot as well?
2: Yeah, definitely in the wine space. I think probably even more so in the wine space, to be honest. I think premiumization is one way to look at it, but you can also th- think of it in, in I guess, terms of polarization. So that means a lot of consumers are moving away from those mid-market products uh, to either the premium end or the budget end. So uh, that's why that's been most prevalent, for example, in clothing retail. Premium brands and budget brands, fast fast fashion brands, like, well, not anymore, but a couple of years ago were both growing in excess of 10% while... Brands like Meyer and David Jones were were, were reporting revenue declines of three five percent a year, and not quite to the same extent. But there is that trend, I guess, in the alcohol space or liquor, you know, liquor retailing space as well. So, uh, for Treasury wines, and because wines, I guess, there's so much more incentive to be a premium, you know, market wine. The markups can be really astronomical, uh, especially you know for a brand like Penfolds, which leans so much on its reputation. Uh, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, they, they're they're planning or potentially looking to diverge it, but the American market is a very big one for Treasury Wine Estates. And uh, uh, having a look through their most recent results, uh, had had a basically a revenue and profit decline in every key market, and that's because of their cellar door sales dropping. Those uh, food services, you know, the the restaurants, cafes, pubs, demand from all those sectors declining. Uh, but they also had a note that their retail sales were up significantly. But that's a case of a company where it's more exposed to the food services side than the retail side of things. Uh, so, on the year, they're going to report a revenue decline. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what plays out as, you know, um, I guess there's some trends in the agriculture section, which might be interesting as well. But uh, I'm not sure if you have anything else add on TWA, but- um I
3: do I do know that uh, one thing that I sort of found fascinating that they reported on uh, was when they're looking at demerging uh, Penfolds, the Bank of America valued the Penfolds business between about ten and thirteen billion. Uh, that was earlier, obviously. That was sort of further back, the beginning of the year, I think, before COVID really took hold. And it's estimated that Penfolds generates about four hundred and fifty million in earnings for the company. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting was Penfolds only accounts for about 10% of the company's volume, but it accounts for well over half of its earnings. So, wow. I think that really talks to what you're talking about there in, you know, premiumization <laughs> really does pay.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, especially when you've got a brand like Penfolds, that just um, you oh, know, almost world-renowned.
3: Yeah. Down. yeah. Uh, so... Look, moving, moving on, uh, because I, there was, a, a, again, like premiumisation, you just were talking about polarisation. Number 10 in the top 10 last year was Nestle. Now, we know them for FMCG brands and grocery goods of Uncle Toby's, Nespresso, N- um, Nescafe, Maggi, Allen's and Purina. Uh, they came in at number 10, but number 11 was George Western Foods, again, doing... FMCG grocery sort of products and Goodman Fielder was at number 12 so that competition between those brands is is obviously really close um what are you seeing what are you seeing this year particularly um we're all going to get so sick of talking about the impact of COVID but what are you seeing (laughs) in in that you know I mean this year it's just uh, yeah it's like we've all been thrown into a cement mixer of you know (laughs) of a virus and it's just throwing everyone out willy-nilly. But what are you sort of seeing in that, um, in that sort of space? That competition is still really fierce or are you seeing some brands drop off, other brands pick up?
2: Uh, so, yeah, competition is obviously going to remain intense. Uh, there's opportunities there in that you know, particularly during the I guess what, what we might call the hoarding phase uh, of the early stages of lockdown, where people were flocking to supermarkets and stocking up, particularly on non-perishables. Um, and I think pharmaceutical sales also show that uh, spiked in in the first quarter of the um, of the calendar year, uh, and then but then reported. You know negative growth or declined in the second quarter as people have realized. Okay, it's not that bad, and now I have to work through the um, two hundred rolls of toilet paper. That of I've toilet paper. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. uh, for so for the FMCG space, you know, there, there's the opportunity of increased sales volume, But it, it, as you mentioned, competition is so intense. You know, I don't think it's too much of a coincidence that we see all those three companies on the list so closely together. Is um, Lindy? Have you seen, been seeing anything unfold? Um, anything caught your eye?
1: Well. What I've found quite interesting um, is how clever some of the brands have been about connecting with their consumers in this COVID time, and I would say that Nestle has been on the front foot there. Uh, one of their recent campaigns uh, has been on the KitKat. The "Are You Okay?" campaign, where they're using their packaging to connect with consumers. They're recognising um, how important it is uh, that the consumer feels an alignment with the brand. And whether it's KitKat or other products, I mean, there have been other players like Dare. um, I think that's a Lion product. Other players are also doing the same sorts of things. But uh, Nestle has made good steps in that direction. And at the same time, um, although during COVID we've seen sustainability um, efforts kind of go on the back burner a little bit, Nestle has stayed on, on game. And um, they've continued to push quite strongly their advances on the Australian recycling label, which is on all their uh, soft packaging, their flexible packaging. They're a big user of flexible packaging across their confectionery and other dry goods products. And more recently, in fact, this last week, we've seen them launch um, the first uh, curbside soft plastics recycling collection um, initiative, just a project that they're running on the Central Coast. But what that tells me is that they're not stopping, that they're not letting go of their bigger goals. Um, And that is why Nestlé will always be such a strong brand.
2: Yeah, I, I think I could back you up there, Lydia. The brand is going to become so important. Uh, even more important because I guess we've talked about the shift to retail, but just more broadly from an economics perspective, we've seen uh, you know, we're gonna see unemployment, you know, at least in Victoria, peak at 10%. Uh, incomes are likely to decline. Although they're risen due to job keeper and job seeker being put in place, uh, you know, even two point two percent up in the quarter. Consumers are saving more, they're not spending as much consumer expenditure was overall down in excess of ten percent in the June quarter. So what companies, you know, in particular in the food space, where competition is so high, is lean on those, lean on their brands, use those initiatives to capture the consumer's mind and imagination, and keep them coming back. Uh, you know, there's there's obviously challenges on either side to do with agriculture. Uh, you know, the output there, the drought constraint, uh, you know, but as we've seen now some pretty good rain on the East Coast and the Bureau of Meteorology forecasts are also really promising for the rest of this year. Uh, We're going to see, you know, grain output increase. Uh, You know, how does that flow through to cereals? Is It is a matter of just reducing costs. Um, you know, and boosting margins or a company going to, you know, chase, chase consumer expenditure by lowering prices. So there's, you know, a wealth of opportunities open to companies now in the, um, especially in the FMCG space. Uh, and yeah, like to your point, Lindy Brand's going to be, you know, more crucial than ever as, as consumer expenditure, you know, most households are going to tighten their wallets over the coming months. And that's a, going to be a challenge, uh, that, that, uh, companies in this space are going to continue to face.
3: And I think one of the things that this year has really presented is, is seeing brands try different things to connect with those consumers. So, the rise of e-commerce platforms for direct to customer that we perhaps wouldn't have seen um, for another couple of years. Uh, PepsiCo set up two e-commerce direct to customer sites. Um, if They set them up in the space of about a month and they did it all internally. They were in the US. Um, they haven't done it here, but Heinz Uh, did. They set up a direct-to-customer e-commerce site uh, where they put together two winter warmer boxes. And I think uh, it's a really interesting development that, again, I think is an accelerated trend because of the pandemic. Uh, And you can see companies trying to be more innovative with then how they're going to build that brand loyalty and grow a relationship with their consumer. You know, Arnott's did that whole campaign of putting out, releasing the the recipe for some of their most favorite biscuits and you could, you know, and did a whole social media campaign of them people making them and putting them up online. And, was that, is, was and, that the
2: bake at home trend uh, when, you know, we're all, we're all stuck at home and sales went up like 300 <laughs> percent yeah yeah that, right
3: they were capitalizing on you know let's don't make sourdough make an iced bovo. I mean you know like as if there's even a question of course you're gonna make an iced bovo uh, one of the other companies that did a really interesting campaign uh, was Mars food and where they had a uh, you could ring in on a hotline and say these are the products I have in my cupboard what should I make for dinner and it was huge. It was like like eighty calls a day of people wow. just going, you know I've got a can of legumes and a you know a bit of dead broccoli in the fridge what can I turn it in?" And I think <laughs> those sorts of campaigns, while they're novel and they might not have longevity, they still engender a brand to a consumer. Yeah, exactly um, so right. I think, yeah, I think looking at those looking at those companies like Nestle and George Weston and Goodman Fielder, it would be really interesting to see where they fall this year on the list. So that sort of rounds out our top ten. There are a couple of meat companies in there. There's JBS, which just you know recently has just announced um, that it's had to slash a third of its workforce at one of at its um, abattoir up in um, near Ipswich.
1: What was the main reason for that, Kim? So uh, they basically said that the
3: ongoing effects of the drought, which theref- which then meant really severe livestock shortage, and then in the impacts of COVID.
1: Yeah. So last year, Tom, drought was one of the factors that affected quite a number of the companies in the 2019 report. Do you see it having as much of an impact this year?
2: So so the I guess the lasting effects of the drought, even though it has been beginning to ease, it's going to, you're sort of going to see it split two ways. So uh, for the list last year, you know, a lot of meat processors were, you know, sort of benefiting from the drought because turnoff rates of, well, I guess, cattle farmers were being forced to send a lot of their cattle to slaughter. So that obviously increases supply to meat processors, and then uh, that obviously keeps them really busy. But now, as the drought is eased, the main factor you're seeing here is, you know, pasture quality. So if on-farm grass is starting to rebuild back up. The price of hay and fodder comes down, so the the cost of rebuilding, uh, I guess, cattle herds goes way way down. So what we're going to see probably over this year and probably even next year as well into 2022 is most cattle farmers start to rebuild their herds. So when, they, when um, Kim you mentioned cattle shortages and stock shortages, uh, most meat processors are very good at adjusting their workforce at any one time to meet uh, cattle supply. That's that, that's not really uncommon. It it has been made worse by COVID, but uh, you know as the pasture improves, we're already starting to see uh, you know the the turnoff rate really decline. Uh, as farmers look to rebuild herds, and you know that's probably going to happen over a couple of years. Um, obviously, as the drought lasted a couple of years, it's been great for companies like JBS. Well, I don't want to say great, but it's it's, uh, it's it's been beneficial. It's benefited companies like JBS and Tays uh, over the past couple of years. But now we're going to see that trend reverse. But I guess in contrast to that, um, anyone with you know wheat inputs, wheat inputs, uh, wheat production is projected to spike this year. Uh, Most grains are going to spike, vegetables, fruit, uh, particularly on the East Coast in Australia. So for anyone in that more horticultural space, fruit and vegetable space, conditions are looking really positive for the year ahead.
3: Oh, really? Because I know that last year, I, you know, as we've just been discussing, the drought was a really big player in those in those sort of fresh produce categories.
2: Uh, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, your fruit and vegetables again. So, cereals a big one. Uh, so, you, you know, you, for example, Nestle has a massive space, and I think they had to pull their Uncle Toby's products off Woolworth shelves at one point last year because the cost of wheat was so high, and Woolworths being a massive player in the market wouldn't allow those cost increases to be flown through. And, the, and I'm not sure of the exact circumstance, but there was a Period of a month there where you couldn't you couldn't get Uncle Toby's uh, at Woolworths because you know that's the that's the market power that Coles and Woolworths are now already sort of having that retail space that um, you know that they, they are price ma- uh, price makers as in well that they did make the decisions on prices so with wheat prices projected to fall and quite sharply this year uh, there'll there'll be um, some big opportunities in the market or just some an opportunity to to bring big profitability for a lot of those cereals, uh, so a lot of players that operate in that cereal space.
3: Um, So look, just sort of to sort of round out our discussion, can we just have a quick chat? What do you think are going to be some of the stellar sectors this year? Last year, poultry processes really, um, you know, had a a good shake of it. Um, We saw sort of dairy food ingredients um, played out really well. So Maxim Foods, while it didn't quite make the cut, it still had the fifth highest revenue growth of the year, um, MPD Dairy Products also had a stratospheric rise from number ninety one to seventy nine. There were other some other really good performers, uh, Thomas Foods, and again this year we've seen Thomas Foods um, sell off part of its business but acquire others. And then the a2 milk company it had it sort of moved as well which again plays to that sort of dairy ingredients and dairy sort of company so what are you what do you think will be some of the stellar sectors this year
2: uh, so I think uh, unfortunately i do have to put everything through the, the COVID lens <laughs> as nice it be as nice it would be uh, just easy to say this sector or another so uh, but anything anything connected with food retailing uh, if you're a firm, what I guess sector you're in matters less. Although I will I guess say that the drought ending is going to really benefit fruit and vegetable processors, uh, cereal processes, anyone to do with grains. Uh, so, for example, some flour wholesalers and, and manufacturers have been performing phenomenally well because you know I think demand for flour went up by as much as three hundred percent during the at-home baking phase. So you're seeing a tripling of retailing de- retail demand, but at the same time food services demand was nearly zero. So this is sort of you know in that may sorry March April. So just as I can't even sit here and say flower re- which went up you know retail demand went up three hundred percent. I can't say with a surety that a company in that space will do well because if they're exposed um, to the cap to cafes, restaurants, hotels, and these sorts of things, um, they would have done really poorly. Uh, you know on the on the flip side uh, you know even a you know a meat processor towards the, you know the first you know in the second half of 2019 might have been doing really well uh, but turnoff rates have plummeted so it's it's, it's just been such a volatile environment uh, but obviously with the easing of the drought, uh, it's, it's, it's good to be in that fruit, vegetable space. Uh, aquaculture. So some early signs that aquaculture are doing well. That's in 2020, 21. In 2019, 20 was quite a tough year. Uh, obviously we're so export heavy and the really sharp decline in air freight capacity. Uh, most air, Australian air freight is exported or 90% exported on commercial air, uh, airplanes. So uh, with, with them gone there was some significant challenges in the space. However, the federal government and other government bodies have stepped in uh, to, I guess, keep, keep that baseline level of freight going. So uh, in terms of where we are now in September, 2020, if you look forward, things are looking better for aquaculture, but uh, in terms of the uh, 2019, 20 list, um, yeah, any, any, like any, anyone connected to retail and I guess liquor wholesalers. We've already seen a couple of results come in. I won't mention any names, but a couple of, like, I guess liquor and grocery wholesalers posted revenue growth in excess of twenty wow. percent because of their exposure okay. to the retail sector. So, uh, it's going to be a really, um, I guess, volatile year with many diverging trends, even within uh, individual sectors. Well, it's
3: very exciting. You and I are going Isn't to have a fun. You and I are going to have a fun <laughs> couple of weeks. Oh yes, we are. <laughs> Um look thank you so much for joining us I, you know i mean i think we could have this discussion for another 3 hours and still barely feel like we've even touched the sides uh, <laughs> we haven't even got to we haven't even really got to things like um you know some some remarkable incidences or or, or situations with some companies and we i mean it's yeah it's going to be a fantastic top 100 this year and uh i think lindy and i are as excited about bringing it to fruition as we, you know, we have been any other year. So I want to um, thank you for joining us today, Tom, um, and giving us all your insights.
2: Well, thank you so much, Kim. This has been great.
3: And uh, thanks, Lindy, for your guiding hand as always and your depth of knowledge and Grant for keeping us all moving. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, just, I just sat back and let you go. You folks know what you're on about. This has been great to listen to. Um, I think it's you're right. It's definitely going to be an amazing uh, top 100 this year and not just because of the name that we don't want to mention but just all the changes that are going on. And as has been said, we're getting out of the drought. We're now in a, what looks like a boom for anything that's Because of the the, uh, increased rainfall we've had recently, it's just at the right time. So this is going to be a very interesting top 100. I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'm sure that uh, everyone else is. And Lindy, do you have anything else to say before we wrap up? Yeah, the top
1: 100 2020 report will be out towards the end of November, early December. Um, And in the lead up to that, we hope to bring you some more insights um, on this very podcast platform. So thanks for joining us on this platform today. Thanks, everyone. Thank
0: you. Thanks, everyone. This has been a blast. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.